So how about we just pray before I start. Father God in heaven, we just thank you for the incredible blessing that you give us in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we just come today and meet around your word, that you will encourage us, you will inspire us, and you will equip us that as we go out um, and leave this place ready to do and live your life faithfully. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Um, I'm not sure if you remember... Um, Michelle and I had some friends about a month ago visit us from Queensland named David and Jeanette. They've been our friends um, in Queensland for many years and our daughter happened to marry their son. Anyway, a couple of weekends ago, they went to a wedding together. And even though we didn't know the couple getting married, on the Monday after the wedding, Jeanette rang Michelle to tell her about the wedding. She gave Michelle great detail about what happened at the wedding, what was worn, what was said, what the colours were and everything like that. A couple of days later, I was speaking to her husband, David. In our conversation, I asked him, oh, I heard you went to a wedding. How was the wedding? And his answer was, yeah, good. <laughs> that was it. There was, he gave me no information at all. Well, it seems the wedding in this book of Ruth is a bit like that. As far as wedding goes, we get no information at all. I mentioned last week how many people say the book of Ruth is all about the marriage. And I said, for me, it can't be because the book of Ruth contains 85 verses. And out of those 85 verses, only half a verse is given to the wedding. And that was the opening verse that Michelle read today. All we get is this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That's it. Must have been written by Mal. No information at all. I mean, even my friend David did better than that. At least he said the wedding was good. <laughs> well, even though we only get Ruth is now married to Boaz, I can't help but think so much more took place. I mean, just think about it. What wonderful change came in to this couple's life. What wonderful change happened in the life of Ruth because she trusted Boaz and let him work on her behalf. She went from loneliness to love. She went from toil to rest, from poverty to wealth, from worry to assurance, and from despair to hope. Ruth was no longer Ruth the Moabite. The past was gone, and she was now making a new beginning. She was now Ruth the wife of Boaz, a name she was proud to bear. And for Boaz, the beautiful person that became her friend had now became his wife. So Ruth became his wife. Boaz was no longer ruthless. Matthew Henry writes this about the marriage. Sorrow in Moab has been changed into happiness in Israel. So after the marriage, God once again pours out his grace and blessings upon this couple by allowing them to conceive and then by giving her the safe delivery of a son. Ruth had the desire of a son to raise up the name of her dead husband. So again, with the blessings of God, a son is granted, a son is given who can fulfil the portion of the law that God concerned in keeping the family name going. Because of the child was conceived and the child that was born, which turned out to be a son, the writer is clear to show us this. The hand of God is controlling every detail in this union. In the case of the child born to Boaz and Ruth, it is the Lord who brings it about. It is Jehovah who is noted 
as giving her conception. Do you know, having kids is a wonderful thing. Even though some days you may want to give them back, kids have always been one of the original blessings of God from the beginning of creation. The other is land. Contrary to what some people believe, though, let me tell you this, having children is not a private affair. In the true biblical sense, having a child is a sacred blessing from God. But every couple should not only want the child to be a blessing for themselves, they should want their child to bring blessings to others. Do you know, Michelle and I lived in Aboriginal communities and we saw this firsthand. When a baby was born in an Aboriginal community, it was a big hoo-ha. People would come to the hospital and, you know, people would get involved and they would be so thankful of the life of a newborn baby. And our girls loved it when babies being born. And I guess you realise in an Aboriginal community, they were born quite frequently. And I remember when we went to Dagulua, our next door neighbour, when we moved to Dagulua, she was pregnant. And I think it was about four or five months later, she gave birth to her child. And we can remember we went and we knocked on her door to congratulate her. And she opened the door and she didn't even let us into the house. And we didn't even get to see the baby. And my daughters came away thinking, what was that all about? How come we didn't even get to hold the baby? We didn't even get to see the baby. They didn't understand how it was like that. And sadly, our, our society has become like that. Well, that definitely wasn't the case with babies in the Bible time. They were there to be celebrated, not just by the couple, but by the whole community. It is truly a wonderful thing when a Christian community seriously, sincerely rejoices when a new child is born. This rejoicing happens because everyone knows the child they have is a gift from God. So the baby is not just a blessing from God for the couple, it is a blessing to us all. That's why we do baby dedications. That's why when we do baby dedications, we include the congregation because a, a baby is a blessing to a whole community. Well, this baby in this story was a special blessing and God's gift to Boaz and Ruth. But God would use this baby not only to be a source of blessing to them and to their home, this baby would be a source of blessing to many. And that's what we're looking at today. The first person this baby was a blessing to was Naomi. What's interesting is when you get past verse 14, it seems like Ruth, Ruth and Boaz drop out of the story. The focus of them is not mentioned anymore. The focus is now on Naomi and the baby. Many are aware Michelle and I became grandparents at the start of the year. I remember some of the comments my friends used to make about being grandparents. They would often paint the grandparent-grandchild relationship as something that is unique and special. One friend said to me, Garth, you can choose when you can have children, but you can never choose when you have grandchildren. Another friend said, grandchildren are better than the fountain of youth because when the grandchildren come to visit you, you feel young again. But then when they leave, you definitely feel old again. Another said, they're all grandchildren because they're grand when they come and they're grand when they leave. Anyway, I can remember saying to my friends, yeah, look, I get all that. But, you know, when this happens to me, I don't think it's going to affect me that much. Well, I was completely wrong. 
I still remember the thoughts and feelings and emotions I had when I went to Adelaide early this year and met my granddaughter Grace for the very first time. I said to both my daughter Samantha and my wife Michelle, this has affected me more than I thought it would. So my friends were right. Being a grandparent is something truly unique. Well, Naomi was no different. This baby was a blessing to her. And it seems that this grandmother informally adopts him or her as her own son and, be and becomes like a foster mother. This was a blessing to her, but the blessing had great effect. Remember, when Naomi returned from Israel, she said things like this, I left full, but I returned empty. I left hoping to find nourishment, but instead I found death. I left with a family and a name, but I've come back with a daughter-in-law and no son to bear the family name anymore. But now, oh, how it's changed. In this child in her arms, she has the blessings of being full again. In this child, she has been granted a both a new and restored life. In this child, she has a family and a name once again. So this child is a huge blessing to her life. And you'll notice that it actually says that she is the one who's got the son. This baby would be a blessing to Naomi in many ways. Boaz had redeemed the family inheritance. Now this baby, as it got older, he would protect that inheritance and use it to bless and care for the family that brought him into the world. This meant he would one day use it to sustain and care for his grandmother, Naomi. This child was an incredible blessing to this woman. No wonder this child was a blessing. What was lost is regained. She is now complete and new again. The life that seemed fruitless is now filled with hope and expectation. This child was a blessing to Naomi first and foremost. But it goes deeper. As I said, babies are there to bless a community. Not only was this child a blessing to Naomi... This child is also a blessing to the women around her. Who these women are in verse 14 isn't stated. It could be the midwives at the birth of the child or the collective group of women from Bethlehem, which is probably the correct interpretation. But whoever it is, remember, the last time the women of Bethlehem were mentioned in connection with Naomi was in chapter 1. This was when she returned home and the women didn't even recognise her. Remember, she asked them, call me Mara because the Lord is against me. So she was bitter. Since that time, nothing is heard of the woman in Bethlehem again in relation to her. Only she and Ruth alone is noted. However, now she is no longer bitter or lacking the Lord's grace. She again is Naomi, living up to her name, the pleasantness of the Lord. Because of her newly found hope, she's rejoicing in the blessings of this baby, and so are the women around her. They're joining in the blessing. They grant a blessing upon her. The women of Bethlehem shared Naomi's joy and they said, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. 
A shout of praise is given to the Lord for the great thing which he has done for Naomi. She who had nothing but a daughter-in-law and an inheritance she couldn't maintain has now been granted more than she could have ever imagined. She's got a new kingsman redeemer. And no, it's not Boaz. It is the baby in her arm. Blessed is the Lord because of what he's done. Blessed is the Lord, they shout, because of what he's done for you. Credit is given where credit is due. It was because God had not left her without a kinsman redeemer that all the praise is taking place. And as I said, the reference of kinsman redeemer is not to Boaz, it is to the baby in her arms. It is the child that is the restorer of life to Naomi. The women shout and give thanks for this child redeemer. Then they continue, may his name be famous in Israel. This is the same blessing the elders bestowed on Boaz and Ruth at the city gates. If these blessings come true, Boaz and Ruth plus this baby, if they become famous in Bethlehem, they will bring honour to Bethlehem, which brings honour and glory to these women. The blessings continue with the words, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Most conclude that the wording of this verse shows us with clarity that the women who are saying these things are the ones still mentioned in chapter 1. They saw Naomi before when she was bitter and dead and without hope. Now, with the baby in her arms, they claim he will make her joyful and vibrant. He will bring her newfound sense of purpose. In addition to that, he will be a nourisher for her in her old age. Their prayer is this, this child will be able to care for her and tend to her in her old age. They are wanting this child to bring happiness, joy and satisfaction to Naomi both now and forevermore while she is alive. The women now refer to Ruth in the blessing. After all, she is the mother of this blessed child. The Hebrew meaning of what they actually say is this, your daughter-in-law who has completely loved you. The women of the town knew the value of Ruth and her love for Naomi. It was through this love this new hope was granted. That's why they claim she is better for you than seven sons. What seven sons could not have done, she was able to do. Only through a woman can a child be born. If she had seven sons but none of them were married, they could never give her what was in her arms. The final thing these women do is they are the ones that actually name the baby. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and then they literally call out. The name the baby they call out is Obed, and so this is the name that that child is called. We're not sure whether this name was called out, became a nickname and stuck, or whether the name was called out and Ruth decided to run with it then and there. We don't really know. Either way, it was the neighbour's women who named him. The name they called out for this wonderful child was Obed. As they saw him, they all shouted together, let his name be Obed, which means servant. It is believed this name was given by the ladies of Bethlehem because this is what they could see him doing in the life of Naomi. He was now her servant. They would see him as able to serve her as she grew older and become less and less able to care for herself. 
There was a point where it would fall on him to care for her, to look after her, to restore her, to nourish her. He is the one who will be the restorer of life and the nourisher of her life. He will be a servant to her. So they call him Obed. So as we can see, by the women offering these blessings, even though the focus of the blessings was on Naomi, if this child lived up to these blessings, this child would be a blessing for them and for their town as well. Now, if this story of Ruth just ended here, with an old grandma hugging a new grandson in a little village, then glorious would be not be too big of a word to sum up the book. But the author doesn't leave it here. The author doesn't stop here. The book of Ruth ends with a note of resounding greatness. He lifts his eyes to the family line of redemptive history, a history that concludes with the words, this child Obed, who is the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. With these words, all of a sudden we realise that something far greater has been in the story than we could ever possibly have imagined. These final words in the book of Ruth reveal the final person this child is a blessing to. And who is that? This child is a blessing to the whole world. Every single one of us. In an explanation of prophecy as much as a blessing, this simple little story ends with a stream of river of hope. Little did Boaz, Ruth and Naomi or the Bethlehem ladies know that God had great plans for this little boy. But Obed would have a son named Jesse. Jesse would have eight sons, the youngest, which would be David, the king. This child Obed was not just about God plotting the history blessings of Jews in Bethlehem. He's preparing for the coming of the greatest king of Israel ever saw. This baby came the ancestor of the great king of Israel, David, Israel's sweet psalmist and prophet of God. If you remember, David wanted to build a house for God, but God told him he would build a house for him. David knew that the Messiah would come from the kingly tribe of Judah, but no one knew which family in Judah he would be chosen. Well, God chose David. God chose David's family and the Redeemer would be known as the son of David. The greatest privilege God gave David was that being the ancestor of the Messiah. David carried the hopes of the Messiah, the new age, peace and righteousness, freedom from pain and crying, grief and all guilt, because he had the promise that the Messiah would come from his line. In a newborn child, there is an infinite amount of possibility when you hold a newborn baby in your arms, you think things like, what will the child do? How long will he live? What will he look like? What will he act like? What will he enjoy doing? The path of a newborn baby will follow is completely unknown to us. But there are so many hopes tied up in a child as well. Do you know when you read the last word of this little book, it closes with the name David. From that name will become the greatest king of all. This tells us that the son born in today's story has a path of great expectations. The whole world is blessed by this baby. Never underestimate the power and the grace of God.
So there you have it. Ruth becomes his wife and Boaz is no longer ruthless. Together as husband and wife, they begin to forge a new life together. Boaz will enjoy his new wife and their expected estate. Then with the birth of a baby, the family name of her former dead husband will continue. When Naomi receives the child from Boaz and Ruth, those watching her friends are ecstatic for her. They show their approval by giving blessing to Naomi, a blessing that this child would go on to be blessed by God. Well, their blessing came true bigger than any of them could ever imagined. The boy goes on to be the grandfather of King David, from whose family tree the saviour of the world will be born centuries later. It is the perfect ending to the beautiful story of faith, love and perseverance. One commentary puts it this way. The book of Ruth can be wrapped up in terms more familiar to us. He said, let's get rid of theology. How do I conclude the book of Ruth? Like this. Ruth got her prince charming. Boaz got his sleeping beauty. And Naomi got her loving family. Naomi will be taken care of. And they lived happily ever after. So now the big question, what does all this mean for us today? We've got to the end of the book, so what? Well, as I said last week, when it comes to what is the main message of the book of Ruth, most conclude the main message of the book of Ruth falls into two categories. Last week I spoke on the first one. The book of Ruth is all about living faithfully, walking by faith like we sung before, regardless of what we are facing. This little book certainly reveals the providence of God in the way he guided everyone involved in this book. One commentator said this, the book of Ruth opens with three funerals but closes with a wedding. There is a good deal of weeping recorded in the first chapter, but the last chapter records an overflowing of joy in the town of Bethlehem. John Piper ends his commentary on Ruth with this statement. One of the things that we conclude from this book of Ruth is this. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there in the end. Do you know, we often expect the Christian life to be plain sailing. Life of the godly isn't a straight line. It's not like jumping on the road of M1 that goes from here to Brisbane and beyond. Brisbane? Melbourne and beyond. Sorry, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> It's more like the roads we have out the back here. I've been riding a lot this week. I'm up, up to averaging 150 k's a week and I go out the back to roads like Jembrook, Belgrave and Dandenong. They're not flat. They're up and down, up and down. The Christian life can be like that. But the book of Ruth shows us it always has signs on it saying your life is up and down but the best is yet to come. It encourages me to know that God still cares for us even when we're bitter towards him as Naomi was. God directed Ruth, a new believer, and used her faith and obedience to transform and defeat victory. God is concerned about the details of our life. This should give us courage and joy as we seek to live and please him every day. The events in the book of Ruth occurred during the period of time of Judges, a time same as us today. If you focus on the evils of our day, you'll become pessimistic and cynical. But if you ask God, 
And if you yield to him and if you hold to him faithfully, serve him, the book of Ruth teaches us that we will experience his grace, love and joy. In the marvellous way God directs our lives and events, even the worst of times will one day be forgotten memories. Someday the difficulties that we'll face will make sense. We'll understand why we face such great trials. But until then, we need to trust giving him our cares and hold fast to the promises of his word. That's living faithfully. That's what we see in this book by Ruth, Boaz, Naomi and everyone else involved. The second main message or purpose of the book of Ruth, and it is no surprise, it's probably even more important than the first one. The book of Ruth has the message of redemption. Even in this last chapter that we've looked at, the key theme of this chapter isn't weddings and births, it is redemption. The words redeem, buy or purchase are used at least 15 times in this last chapter of Ruth. The book of Ruth is all about redemption. What's it mean? The word redeem means to set free by paying a price. In the case of Ruth and Naomi, when it came to the property, the rights of the land had passed to Ruth from her dead husband. This explained why she's a part of the transaction. So she got this land from her dead husband, but she had a great problem. She had a right to the land, but she was too poor to redeem it. She needed Boaz to come and lawfully redeem the land for her. And he did. Do you know, this is a great picture of the meaning of redemption. Ruth is set free from a debt by someone else paying the debt. But for us who read it today, it is more than just a great picture. It's a great biblical truth, that of God's redemption offered to us. In our fallen state, we cannot love perfectly, so we can never perfectly fulfil the law. The law only shows us our desperate need for God's mercy. But God cannot show mercy to the point of violating his own righteousness. Sin is sin. Sin is wrong. God hates sin and it must be judged. And so God sent his son into the world. The Bible says God is love. And if this is so, his son is love and he can love perfectly so he can perfectly fulfill the law. Then in the most amazing display of love ever given, he willingly gave his own life up in exchange for our sins. He paid the price for all of us who were unable to pay. The story of Ruth's redemption centred on Boaz. The story of our redemption centres on our Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to spiritual redemption, all of us are either in bondage to sin and Satan or we're not. We were all unable to set ourselves free. Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for sinners. Faith in him sets the captives free. We have the debt, but Jesus pays the price. Now I know, as Andrew said, you've all heard this a thousand times before, but I hope, I hope you never lose the excitement of the message. Jesus died and paid the price for you. Jesus redeemed you. Jesus showed you more than mercy. He showed you grace. People often ask me, what's the difference between mercy and grace? Let me share a story with you. 
Imagine if you're driving down the highway and you're speeding and the next minute you look in your rear vision mirror and you see those dreaded red and blue lights flashing and you pull over. And the policeman gets out, comes up to you and says, do you know you were speeding? And you say, oh, yeah, look, officer, I was, but, you know, I'm off to here, there, there, there and there. If he says to you, look, I'm feeling in a good mood today, you're fine, you just go. If he lets you off, that's mercy. But imagine if he says to you, he says, look, I don't care what excuse you got. You're speeding. You're wrong. You broke the law. A price has to be paid. But then the policeman says to you, but I'll tell you what, I see you're a bit distressed. So look, today what I'm going to do is I'll go back to the station and I will pay your fine. And not only that, you lose three demerit points. But I've got heaps of them, so I'll go and take those three demerit points off my licence. That is grace. That is being redeemed. If that ever happened to you, do you think you'd ever forget the name of that copper? Do you think you would ever forget that day? Do you think you'd ever not talk about that day? Well, that's what it's like for us as Christians. We all deserve I don't know if you know Jeffrey Bingham, but he was a great theologian from Adelaide. He used to say, if God gave us the love we deserved, we'd all be dead. But he doesn't. He gives us his grace. He has paid the price for us. As Christians, we don't have to look too far to see the beauty we have in being in a relationship with God. Each time, you know, I visit a bookstore, most of it's online now, I try to see what subjects are getting um, prominent notice. In recent years there's been a theme of deliverance. I've seen our shelves, um, books about addictions and codependency and anxiety and depression find their way. It's interesting, or should I say sad. Do you know, in today we live in a world where we seem to enjoy um, freedom like no one else. But does this freedom bring about freedom? No, it doesn't. Millions of people are still in bondage. Millions of people still live in bondage to food, sex, drugs, alcohol, gambling, work, and a dozen of other masters. Why is this? Well, I hope I'm not being too judgmental, but I think people try and pay the price for themselves. They try and find satisfaction in dealing with their guilt and their shame themselves. It doesn't work. Do you know, even we as Christians, we can thank God for the help counsellors and pastors can give but it's only Jesus Christ who can give freedom and truly set you free from being enslaved. It saddens me that so often I know I've counselled people knowing I've only put a Band-Aid over a cancer. I know I've helped people's marriages, I've helped people's relationships and I've helped people at school and I've helped people with this and that, but you know what? I've only done it for the here and now. I've made no difference at all in regards to their soul and eternity. They are still in bondage. No wonder we read Jesus' words in John 8. I tell you the truth, everyone who is a slave to sin, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I say again, Jesus died and paid the price for you. What are the marks of Redeemer? Do you know, not everyone can perform the duties of Redeemer. Even in the Old Testament, not everyone can perform the duties of a Kingsman Redeemer. 
three things were needed. To begin with, you had to be a near kinsman. If you remember, that was the major obstacle that Boaz had to overcome. He wasn't the near kinsman. There was one closer than he was. So that's the first requirement. The second requirement is in order to be the kinsman redeemer, you had to be able to pay the price. Ruth and Naomi were too poor to redeem themselves, but Boaz all had all the resources necessary to set them free. It is no good having a kinsman redeemer that can't pay the price. And if you remember, the, first, the, act, the actual kinsman redeemer was happy to pay the price for the land, but not for the wife. The third qualification is the kinsman redeemer must be willing to redeem. As we saw in the chapter, the near kingsman redeemer was not willing to redeem Ruth. The near kingsman had the money, but not the motivation. He was afraid of what would happen to his inheritance. Boaz, on the other hand, was free to purchase land and wife. So there are the three things needed. And let me tell you, we can see all three marks in Jesus. Jesus had to become related to us before he could redeem us. He became flesh and blood so he could die for us on the cross. Hebrews 2 said, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood, being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, he who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. When he was born into this world in human flesh, he became our near kinsman and he will remain our near kinsman for all eternity. When it comes to paying the price for redemption of sinners, no one but Jesus Christ is rich enough to pay the price. It doesn't matter how rich you think you are, no amount of money can ever set a sinner free. What is needed isn't coins, not notes, not good works and not even prayers. What is needed is blood. It is the shedding of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we celebrated at communion that has accomplished your redemption and mine. 1 Peter 1 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and effect, that you have been set free. And yes, the final thing is he was willing We have been redeemed through Christ's blood because he was willing to come and lay down his life for us. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that he are his very own, eager to do what is good. There can be no redemption without someone being willing to pay the price. From our point of view, salvation is free. Do you know, I don't like the terminology, God's love is free. From our point of view, it is free. But from God's point of view, redemption and salvation is a very costly thing. It cost him his son. He made the ultimate price. So the book of Ruth beautifully illustrates God's work of salvation. 
The story opens up with Ruth as an outsider, a stranger, but ends with Ruth as a member of the covenant community because she married Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. He paid the price for her. He redeemed her. Isn't it great to know that God not only writes books, but he writes the chapters of our lives? Through redemption, he writes the beginning, the middle and the end of all of our lives. No wonder we can read his words and have love stirred in our life. We have a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. The book of Ruth reminds us that God is at work in our world. He's still trying today to seek and save the lost. Now that we're into the book, what's our role? Find our place in his vineyard. Accept his gift of redemption through his son. Live faithfully, trusting him, regardless of what's happening around us. And help reap a harvest in pointing the lost to him. That, I believe, is the book of Ruth. People have asked me, where are you going to from here? Well, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to Revelation. The book of Jesus, the book of Ruth points to Jesus. And so where I'm going to here is I'm going to start another mini-series, but anyway, on who is this Jesus? And so next week I'm going to look at things, who does the Bible say Jesus is? But you know what? I think the best way to understand a person is get it straight from their mouth. Who does Jesus say he is? And we have statements that he makes about himself. There are seven of them. You've all heard them. They're the seven I am statements. And so we're going to look at them each individually. What do those statements mean? Who does Jesus say he is? When he says, I'm the light of the world, what on earth does that mean? When did he say it? Why did he say it? How did he say it? Is that important? And so we're going to go through and we're going to look at each of those. We're now going to paint a picture of who does the Bible, what does the Bible say Jesus is, but who does he say he is? Because that's the one who came from the line of David. He is the true Messiah. May God bless you today and um, let's finish our sermon with another song.